but we have a choice right now. What do you think you're going to do? Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Roger. And welcome to The Middle. Where we try to have thoughtful conversations. About awkward topics. On our search to find The Middle. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I act as if God exists. Put your masks on. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Andy, how are you doing? Good, thanks, Roger. How are you? I'm very good. I'm actually, uh, you know, my day-to-day rhythms are going to change quite a lot, actually, in about a month. I'm... Uh, going to uh, have a holiday with my family and then when I get back I'm going to be a um, a stay-at-home dad for the rest of the year which is something that um, I've never done before so I'm uh, very excited anxious nervous about it all but it's going to be some big changes for me my question to you is do you feel like these being a stay-at-home dad thing is an extension of the holiday <laughs> no I'm wise enough to know that that's definitely not going to be a holiday but at the same time you know, they do say a change is as good as a holiday, so it's definitely going to be that. It's definitely going to be a change. Um, but I'm under no illusions that um, paradoxically that I'll be, you know, even more time poor than when I'm, when I'm, you know, working right now full time. In my mind, being a stay-at-home dad is like going to the cafe with the pram and having like leisurely mornings, strolls in the park, that kind of thing. Like, Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing too, right, because obviously the system works – from when mothers groups form right so that you have other people in your community that you can do those things with you can you can push the pram around meet them at a park have your coffees and pastries things like that right that's the idyllic maternity leave dream but for me i don't know i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to find my way right so what you're trying to say is you identify as an up and north shore mom a yummy mummy start uh, rocking some lululemons i've definitely got the legs for it um so we'll just have to see what happens you know so so roger what are we talking about today so today we're talking about like a really important topic and is getting lots of airplay and will continue to do so for the Australian public over the next six months, and that's the the voice. Oh, um, which is I thought that ended on channel was it that on channel nine or channel ten? I thought it finished. See, uh, you're falling into the same trap that I did, which it's not a. Um, oh, you mean John Farnham? <laughs> you're the voice. It's a good song. Though. Every time we say that, we're going to have to pay him some royalties because you know um, that's why he gave up touring. Finally. I don't think he wrote it. <laughs> The Voice, which is an abbreviation, is about establishing an Indigenous voice to Parliament in Australia. Okay, so we have a referendum that's been announced, and I'll read it as a short little thing that that all Australians will have to answer from sometime um, between now and the end of the year. And it's a proposed law to alter the Constitution to recognise the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve this proposed alteration? So that's what we're going to have to vote on from now until the end of the year. It's our first referendum since the 90s. So quite a historic event. I think we should really unpack a little bit more about the context of the voice and where the ideas come from. Obviously, it's an Indigenous voice, so an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. So it's for you know our First Nations people to cover their their perspectives and views on matters that affect them. But Roger, do you want to give us a little bit of a rundown? Obviously, there's like, you know, history that goes back a very long time, but maybe just the more recent history up to now and and, um, what's led us to this referendum later in 2023. 
Yeah, it's not going to be a tyranny of dates and a historical lesson from me, but um, obviously our Indigenous people were the first inhabitants of Australia and the scientific evidence that it's an unbroken chain going back over 60,000 years and the longest living culture in the world. And through European colonization, especially with the English and Cook arriving in Australia, there was a whole bunch of frontier wars. And essentially we are where we are today. Um, fast forward where the Aboriginal population makes up only 3.2% of all Australians. So it's been an ongoing battle to try to close the gap in terms of health outcomes, employment outcomes, uh, welfare outcomes, things like that when it comes to our Indigenous people. And in 2017, there was a project to pull together in a mass consultation as many Indigenous leaders and elders to essentially come together. And they released the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Part of that was to promote a voice to parliament as part of the constitution. Okay, so 2017, a group of uh, Indigenous Australians uh, reflecting uh, a broad range of leaders and elders and from around Australia came together and expressed their sentiment and, and agreement to pursue the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. But there's actually two components to it. There's a constitutional recognition of uh, Indigenous Australians as the first people of Australia because the existing constitution doesn't really recognise that. And then I guess, you know, I suppose partly what was coming out of the earlier statement of the heart, but also other sentiments of Indigenous Australians, that it's not really enough to just have rec constitutional recognition. There needs to be something a little bit more than that. So I think probably we should get into what, what it actually is the, the voice and, and how does it go a bit further than simply constitutional recognition. The Voice is an Indigenous advisory body to the government on both a local, state and federal level. So the idea here is that this advisory board made up of Indigenous First Nations people would be able to consult with the government at all these different levels on matters that affected anything to do with Indigenous people. Okay, so maybe this is a good time to put on the table the actual amendment. So the proposed amendment to the constitution would read, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice uh, in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to Parliament and the Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and the Parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including its composition, functions, powers, and procedures. So why is this so controversial? Or is it controversial? It's hard to tell. Put it this way, the Constitution is not a document that affects the everyday lives of Australians. Um, so for a lot of people, there's a little bit of a, a history lesson embedded in that question around what it is and, and why it's important. Sorry to interrupt the podcast. Andy and I have really enjoyed doing this. And while we don't want your money or anything like that, it's been great to see the number of our listeners grow since we kicked things off last year. The best way for us to reach more people is word of mouth. So if you'd like to support us, then we'd be really grateful if you could share it to a friend or someone that you think might enjoy the podcast. We know there's a conversation for everyone. So please pick an episode that you think that they'd like and share away. That ends our shameless plug and we'll return you now back to the episode. Andy, maybe a good place to start is um, just some basic questions about it so we can just start the discussion. And I mean, the obvious one that, that comes up is why is a voice to parliament, an indigenous voice to parliament even needed? There are 
existing advisory bodies, in fact, dozens and dozens that are in operation today, don't they already have a voice? Well, I, I mean, yeah, I guess strictly they do have a voice. Uh, Indigenous Australians can vote. They can run for parliament. We have Indigenous representatives in the parliament. Um, as you say, we have um, a range of different advisory councils depending on the policy area or I guess more generally as well. Usually consultative government is, you know, it, it's a mode of operation to solicit views from stakeholders and, in, and certainly Indigenous Australians are uh, invited to participate as any other Australian is. But, I mean, this is really a little bit more than than that. It's probably its, it's most powerful. Uh, I, I guess the, the key substance of it is, is, is as this, like, very important gesture to not only recognise that Indigenous Australians were the first people in Australia and, but, you know, that, that, that we actually have to also take some concrete actions to uh, recognise that, but also, as you touched on earlier, to ensure that Indigenous voices are heard within government as decisions are made. So I think a really cynical view would be, and we probably get to some of this today, um, it's just an advisory body. It doesn't actually have any power. It's not really adding anything more than the status quo. But then on another level, there's actually this really quite profound sort of symbolic value. I mean, it's been described as a gift from Indigenous Australia to the rest of Australia to say, here we, we, we want to come together as part of, you know, I guess a reconciliation journey. And this is something that if you come along with us on this journey, this will help and support our progress towards reconciliation. Interesting. And I think therein lies some of the, the complexity, right? That how much of this is meant to be, you know, um, you know, put your analytical cap on, your problem-solving cap on, what's the pure outcome and value that a voice to parliament and an advisory board is going to deliver versus some of the elements that you spoke about where actually it's bigger than that. It's a gesture, it's a symbol, it's a, um, it's a conscience vote almost that we're on a path of reconciliation together. And I think that's what's going to be quite hard when it comes to a referendum because as we know in referendums, uh, you know, detail is sometimes your enemy. And that we saw that a lot in the 1999 referendum to become a republic, that uh, we got bogged down in detail and a lot of people voted no around the detail rather than the principle, which was much more clear cut. And I think there's going to be a lot of lessons uh, learnt from that experience. So it's hard to have a nuanced conversation in such a simple referendum terms. What's your, what's your view in kind of what order those two things should be balanced around a symbol and a gesture towards reconciliation versus no, I expect I expect this um, advisory board to actually have results. This is like the the tension of the whole thing because proponents of the voice to one group of stakeholders, particularly Indigenous Australians, saying Look, this is the opportunity for you to have ensure that Indigenous perspectives are factored into decision making, and, and this will instrumentally be a way to improve outcomes, right? So policies will get designed taking into account the views of, of Indigenous Australians and, and particularly policies that affect Indigenous people. And I guess at that level, there's this sort of great optimism and, and aspirational hope that the voice will will actually genuinely make, make a difference. It will have an impact. It will influence. It will be the difference between decision A and decision B. But then on the other hand, you have this counter message being conveyed to maybe the rest of Australia who are maybe a little bit nervous or a little bit 
cautious about it, saying, oh, no, it's completely powerless. It'll be a toothless tiger. I mean, they don't obviously say that, but they're quite upfront that it's just an advisory body, doesn't possess any power, can't veto anything. So I guess there's these competing messages, one to the Indigenous peoples of Australia, say that the voice is is the um, mechanism to deliver a better outcome for their communities and uh, and others in Australia actually by design it's 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 going to be powerless and I think that needs to be resolved I don't think it has there's definitely a conflicted uh, message there yeah I, I think so too so to be clear for our listeners the um, the voice to Parliament is an advisory board it doesn't have veto rights and and the advice that's given can be ignored right so that's that's kind of established up front so you would kind of think to yourself well that's not really much power inherently provided within this but then again having that representation we we do know obviously can make the difference when it comes to policy development but there's not a lot of power granted within this right which is also required to get it over the line it would be a mistake for people to presume that because it doesn't have any direct power in terms of hands-on levers and veto rights or anything like that, that it's actually not powerful because it's effectively going to be entrusted with this actually quite privileged position to be able to say, this is the view on this topic. Let's contrast it with the status quo, right? Across the whole of civil society, there is a diversity of perspectives on, on any given issue and it's like a public debate. Not all groups see eye to eye. And even now as we're debating the voice in the in the public debate, there's lots of different perspectives out there. Yeah. But in some respects, the notion of the voice is singular. It's quite a powerful position in that the government of the day is probably quite unlikely or at least much less likely to want to put forward a policy position that, that affects Indigenous Australians but is in contravention of the advice of, of the voice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I want to come back to this idea that why we're even having a referendum, right? And referendums are hard. Obviously, you need a majority of all voters and a majority of all of our states saying yes. What is it about enshrining it in the constitution? Why is that important in your in your mind compared to what we have now, which is advisory bodies that still provide a voice? Well, that's where a lot of the current debate and controversy is over it, right? Because at the end of the day, the only thing the constitution is going to say is that there shall be a body called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice and that the parliament creates all the rules, details, you know, frameworks, whatever, how its its composition functions, powers and procedures, right? So it pretty much is still going to be subservient to parliament. And even today, the parliament can create laws to establish a voice and it can do so without a constitutional amendment. Some Indigenous leaders like uh, Warren Mundine would would express sort of a a degree of scepticism that if this is the thing that's so important, just do it. Like, do it today. Do it yesterday. Don't spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it's going to cost on a referendum. Spend that money in Indigenous communities and and legislate this thing today and and we'll already have it. But I guess this is the tension, right? The rationale for doing it isn't purely functional. It's also... There's a, a, a bit of symbolism. Symbolic, yeah. It's it's a gesture of as part of the um, constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians as as the first peoples of Australia. But it's a legitimate debate to say why should we spend hundreds of millions of dollars on this when we've got young 
Indigenous Australians still living in poverty. Yeah, that's right. Look, I mean, the, the things that come up when you talk about that is that obviously once it's in, enshrined in the constitution, you need essentially another referendum to to change it. And that would take us down a path of, well, we need to do this because then the government of the day can't really dissolve the voice to parliament. But like you said, it's part of the <laughs> legislation anyway that controls the terms, right? So it's a bit of an umbrella umbrella term, but I guess there has been a history, to in, to acknowledge it fully, there has been a history of many advisory boards, Indigenous advisory boards being funded and defunded as you know, successive governments come into place, right? And now I'm not saying the reasons for that were right or wrong, but there, it needs to be noted that there has been that natural kind of reforming of bodies and, and um, advisory boards in this space. I'm not sure the angle you're coming at it from though, but you know, th- this won't necessarily change instability with respect to the thing that we call the voice. So there might still be changes made. It, it might be that it's dissolved and re-established. The only thing that um, the constitutional amendment will establish is that there must be continuity of this thing called the voice right but it's makeup and how it's established it's subject to parliament right parliament yeah. will it will be less likely though right andy because there's slightly more protection um from the constitution and there can be you know challenges in the high court for where indigenous people feel that some of this has been breached right whether they weren't consulted on an issue or if it was downsized inappropriately to you know, a graduate on on a desk somewhere. If the constitution is delegating to the parliament to decide how it's set up, which is essentially the case, then I mean, so maybe to put a case study out there. So uh, during the Howard government, there was a body called ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, and during the Howard government, it was dysfunctional. So the Howard government made a decision to disband it. Right? There's nothing in the constitution that would eliminate the right for the parliament to reserve its ability to say dissolve the makeup of the voice right you know maybe the danger here is you know we're kind of speculating as to how the thing might be set up and this could be a a good segue into you know the next part of this conversation which is that other than the constitutional amendment as it's sort of proposed and you know some you know key principles that have been published we actually don't have a lot of detail of how the voice will actually operate. We, we don't have legislation that will accompany uh, the amendment. We, we don't know like functionally how it will work, how will people be elected and so on and so forth. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, and it's always a bit of a balancing act between, um, and again, this is caused by the referendum, right? So there, you need to keep things simple and digestible enough that every Australian voter can, can comprehend and, and make a call on and not bog it down too many details where you get a no vote because you disagree with an implementation detail rather than the principle, right? So I kind of feel for them. But then again, it takes us back to why they feel the constitutional recognition is important and how much of that is a, you know, outcome versus symbolism. So I think that they need slightly more detail in a lot of ways. And I think that there are papers out there, um, like you said, that have guiding principles, and other recommendations. No, it's not final, but would go a long way to helping the public understand a little bit more about how this would work, right? Um, You can find it, it's behind the scenes, but it's definitely not a part of the headlines, right? You know, the fact that there will be, you know, local council, state and federal representation all the way up the tree. They have the 
suggested gender makeup, the fact that they're only voted in by Indigenous people, the, there's term limits. There's all sorts of details behind this in papers and in and study, you know, things like that, that I think a, a summary of that would really help the public. And I, I think that maybe we might start to see that as we get closer to the vote. I'm going to take a bit of a, a different view to you on this in that I actually think this is a really big mistake, right? In that let's just take for granted that, and you know, I appreciate this is all open for debate, but let's let's just take for granted that your objectives are to achieve to the maximum extent the vision of the Uluru Statement of the Heart, right? And you want to be a government that shepherds that through. You, you mentioned like too many details confuses people and, you know, reflected back on the previous referendum and how that sort of yeah but actually like the experience can be worse if you do not set out the details right so it's one thing to have details out in the domain that then get debated and argued and tossed around by different camps like the s camp the no camp whatever but at least you know what the details are but the risk here and the challenge here is that if you do not put any details out and by details i don't just mean guidelines or principles or the speculative musings of you know people behind the scenes i'm talking about actual legislation that the parliament is going to vote on then you open yourself up to scare campaigns you open yourself up to the no campaign basically saying even even the fact that do you even know what this is you know they have and, and then saying well the reason you don't know what it is isn't because you're ignorant it's because the government hasn't shown you <laughs> what it's going to do and Unfortunately, I, I'm not sure like when the minds of Australians focus on this abstract concept called the voice without really kind of knowing what it's about, or at least after being told that there's oh, that there's no legislation, there's no model, I think a lot of people are just going to go, oh, well, I may as well be risk averse on this, so I'll just vote no. And that would be a real shame, especially if, you know, if you're on the side that um, that's if you support this and, and that um, it might be an own goal that they're scoring. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from, but I do think that it gets to a point where when you talk about scare campaigns and things that sometimes the details of implementation, because they actually haven't been worked through, if they were to go a bit harder on that, then there'd just be more fuel for them to pick up little bits and details and cherry pick things for their own scare tactics, right? So I think that um, some of the things that I mentioned are probably, that's where I, my middle is, right? Just a little bit more about the mechanisms and the principles and, and, and so on. But I, I think that if you release full legislation, it's just more for people to nitpick over. No, but the, but the problem is you can't talk about any of the things you've just talked about because there is no bill. Right. No, I know, but there's you guidelines on it, right? To- well, but you can't talk about this is what we will do in terms of gender balance or this is what we'll do in terms of any of those features if, if there's no bill. And, and look, maybe to take a step back, the voice as a concept has been around now for some years, right? This, this actually, this process kick-started under the last government. They, notwithstanding the coalition's current policy view to oppose the voice as it's going to be put to the public in uh, later in later this year, it was nonetheless working behind the scenes to to progress the voice. Right. The only thing is that they had a different model or a different approach. Right. And their approach was essentially to let's get those details all sorted out first. Let's get this is like functionally how it would work. This is how the local bodies would work, the state bodies, and then this is what a federal voice, you know, the equivalent, the Commonwealth level voice would look like. 
And once we get sort of buy-in, and that takes a long time to do that, right? But nonetheless, you invest a lot of time getting buy-in and and a common ground on that. You even pass a bill saying this law will be enacted, you know, upon constitutional amendments um, being progressed and, and, and empowering the voice. But then at least you're taking all of the rough edges. And I think the if you ask me, right, are they going to win votes by not giving the detail or lose votes? I fear that um, I fear they they they're losing net votes, right? It'll it'll play out, but I I do think that there is a huge chunk of the population, though, Andy, that is not as engaged, and those details matter less than the principle, and that's definitely the strategy that they're going for. I'm not saying the details are going to win people over, right? It's it's the notion that you you would be signing off a blank check by voting yes. Okay, that's the that's the thing. That's going to be the scare campaign. I guarantee you that'll be the talking point. It'll be, why would you vote yes for a constitutional amendment that you don't even know the consequences of it? So that line totally disappears if the government can say, no, we've already passed legislation. This is, a, this is what's all going to happen like post 1 January or whenever this thing commences, right? So it's not that they're going to be able to give you know, 50 reams of Q&A pages on the website that's going to win the vote. It's going to be that's going to kill the number one talking yeah. point that the no campaign is going to roll out. I just don't think that the blank check thing is going to work because like we already spoke about, it's a, it's a toothless tiger. It's, I think most people vote no because they don't think it's going to be effective or it does, it's not going to do anything, not that it's going to give the Indigenous voice unchecked power. Yeah, but you said yourself, right? Three, what was it? Three and a half percent of Australians are identified as, in, as Indigenous. Is that what? Three point two. Yeah. Three point two percent. The other ninety six point eight percent. There's a cohort that are quite passionate about reconciliation and, and doing the right thing. But there's another cohort that's just thinking, well, let's just not mess with this thing that's worked for us, right? And who's just who's going to take a risk averse approach to it? Because that's that's the logical thing people do if they perceive there's only downside risk, they they don't they don't act on that thing, right? So in this case, this is how every, virtually every election is is fought and won, right? It's let's go to like the worst possible case scenario. Let's make people scared. Let's make people uncertain. And that and they've done that by not giving. No, I understand, but we just said detail. that it's kind of a toothless tiger, right? They've that they don't have veto, they don't have other powers, right? But this is where your details argument comes back to bite you because you can say that because you know those details. But if a disingenuous or a campaign that's not operating in good faith can say to, to you who doesn't know those details that here's this thing that's going to give effect to this other thing that's yet to be determined that could do all sorts of manner of things, right, then... That's how scare campaigns work, right? They take people yeah. down to, if you do not know what the voice is, don't vote for it, right? That will be the talking point. That will be the the campaign slogan. You wouldn't take a vaccine without knowing what's in it. Why would you take the voice? <laughs> vote no. Like I think that, um, but but I think there is a, there is a real risk here um, and that's a social risk. And I think we should probably talk about that along this way too, that actually when you're presented with the raw facts and I suppose, you know, some of the unresolved trauma of Australians when it comes to our treatment of Indigenous people and how we've benefited, I think that's the part, right? Like that actually publicly saying to people, no, has a bit of a social cost associated to it nowadays. And I think that it's the hushed voice and what's going to be inside the privacy of the um, polling booth. But I think that uh, even we've spoken about this before, really in Australia, 
Indigenous people and affairs are, are kind of the last frontier in terms of things you that are taboo to talk about. So I do think that that plays into this as well, and I think that probably has to do with the strategy that the um, the government is taking. That they're probably banking on a lot of that principle. That it's a very very hard argument when you you, you know you talk about uh, first people that have been dominant for sixty thousand years, and then in the last two hundred years they've been dwindled down to three percent of the population. Um, all the ways the myriad of stats that are horrific to read out loud on how they're disadvantaged in terms of youth deaths and and all sorts of horrible things, right? I think they're playing into that as well, that it's actually, in principle, you don't even want their, like, what kind of monster is going to vote no on just letting them have a voice when they're the first people, you know, and they've been horribly brutalized by um, colonialism, right? So I think that they're, they're banking on that as well. I mean, we sort of started this on the premise that you want to be a government that, that gets gets this up, right? You really, really, really want to make sure You've had the conversation with the community, the broader public. You've worked out the details. Appreciate that can take years, right? But you get the public to a point where they're ready to to vote yes, and then you hit the trigger and you have the referendum. And like, I get the whole appetite to like, well, let's just proceed and we'll get there. But I think the fear, and I guess my maybe my criticism here is that most Australians, even today do not know what on earth they're going to be voting for. Maybe they don't even know there's a referendum on. Or the very first they'll hear or they'll even know about this thing is that first ad that they see when they're watching The Price is Right or whatever. Yeah. They'll probably think like uh, I did a long time ago that it's going to be an all Aboriginal cut season of The Voice singing show. (laughs) Andy, I think um, when I'm reflecting on this, I actually think that from a change management point of view and a campaign point of view, the problem is that we are so far, so much time has passed from the Uluru Statement from the Heart because that was the kind of coming together. That was the Kumbaya, right? But it's too long ago now. That's five years ago. But not for mainstream Australia. Well, no, I, I think so. Like, l- l- let, me, l- let me read you something from it, okay? So in the statement, and I'm kind of taking a few bits from it, proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. This should not be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to this country. We call for the establishment of the First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. Like, all of that, right, I think needs to back into this as a movement. And I think that that's the problem. There's a disconnect, right? For And you can see where that strategy is going to kind of pull at the heartstrings and actually in the face of those statements and the kind of hearing from the, you know, the Indigenous leaders of this country, I think they're going to need to inject that in here to get people over the line. Well, I think it has been. This this whole thing traces, like in terms of where we've gotten to today, traces itself back to that. But not for most people, right? Well, most people don't know even what the voice is. But let's be honest. If you go to like a, a random Kmart somewhere in Australia and you ask some random person looking for sweaters and ask them, what do you think about the voice and its relationship to the Uluru statement of the heart? And they'll look at you asking her, what are you, what are you talking about, right? So I don't, I don't work here. 
It's just I'm just wearing a navy shirt. <laughs> this stuff is just not in mainstream Australia's consciousness, right? This is this is like if you feel you've got a good grasp of the topic, you are probably in in a city elite who follows this stuff, but like this is not kind of everyday Australians are paying attention to. Like I know we're sort of making fun of it in some ways, but really like the voice the TV show had more of the Australian public's mental bandwidth than than this, right? Man, where's where's Delta Goodrum when you need her? Do you do you think we're going to get a um a medley by some pop stars? I wouldn't put it past you know. <laughs> we'll have a theme song. I'm, I mean, if if John Farnham's the voice isn't going to be sung by Jess Mowboy, I um I don't know as part of the Yes campaign. I don't know. Guy Sebastian that. definitely thrown in there. Somehow. Well, he's not not um not Indigenous, so. You know, obviously, you and I we're we're trying to sort of have this conversation a little bit um, as like almost men from Mars, right? But maybe for the like to just put our hats on and assume the role of you know Indigenous Australians. So you know, what what's their perspective on it? So the polling is sort of very strongly in support. So you know, eighty percent of Indigenous Australians, I think, you know, some of the latest polls say that you know they're in support of it. We've kind of considered some of the ins and outs and the debate itself but yeah what, what's your what's your take on the current attitudes towards the voice there's a trick here i think right whether it's polling or whatever it is when it comes to indigenous people something that i've always thought but i've really concreted in my thinking over the last while is that white australia thinks of the indigenous community as essentially one voice we kind of know that there's different dialects and different regions and tribal kind of elders, but we still think of it as one homogenized culture. And what we are finding, and and time and time again, what has been proven is that that's just not true. That's not how they identify. Um, They've told us this plainly, that they don't see this concept of Aboriginal in the same way that we do. And as a result, like you don't have alignment of of this stuff. So no, I don't actually believe that the 80% polling is representative. And this is something that is very, very hard for non, you know, for the rest of Australia looking at, looking at this play out on the in the public stage to see that prominent Aboriginal Indigenous um, spokespeople and leaders are voting no and rejecting the voice to Parliament, you know, and I think that's something very, very hard to understand because it's like, isn't this what you've always wanted? You know, we we did this is like the project, you know, and we can all relate to this from white collar work and being involved in companies. We did the project. We we consulted. We, we got over 200 of your leaders. We all came together. This is what you signed off on. We are, we are fulfilling the work order that you signed off on, and now you're telling us you don't want it. Yeah, I listened to some other podcasts before today just to get my head around some of the issues, and I, I listened to these episodes where they did have like a few different perspectives on and guests, and, and they're usually affiliated with a media network, so yeah. I won't name any names, but they're um, you know they're not amateurs like us they're they're professionals but they're like you, you, they're inner city white people right mm. and they'll have like an indigenous person on because they want to give a diversity of views with respect to the voice on the podcast so but the way they challenge the no proponents like so indigenous people who are against the voice or at least not necessarily the concept of a voice, but at least what's proposed in its very specific sense. It's very uncomfortable because yeah. they're like, we should not pay attention to the noise. Are you just part of the noise? And it, <laughs> are you part of the really, noisy few? Like, it, <laughs> I it's, love that line. Yeah, it's just, it's just, 
anyway, so, but uh, look. Uh, Andy, no one eats their own like the left. But I guess the comment I was going to make with polling, right? I think polling a question like this is, it's not that insightful because, you know, if you ask someone, do you support a voice, right? Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, people aren't really answering the more technical questions at play that they'll eventually have to answer in the referendum. They're almost kind of shortcutting it to, do you support Indigenous Australians or not? And yeah. now that might be a bit different to, you know, for, for the Indigenous population, it might be not quite that question. You know, it might translate to, do you want to have a voice as an Indigenous Australian? In which case, yeah, of course they would say yes. But, you know, and then for the rest of Australia, it's like, do you, do you want to support Indigenous Australia, right? So, yeah, of course, you know, I'm, I'm all on board for a big, grand, um, symbolic gesture. But yeah. it's not really informative of how would you vote when it comes down to it. Yeah. And look, uh, if I can go back to that comment too I made about this idea of you know having a really in-depth consultation period for the Uluru Statement, but then still having prominent Indigenous communities saying, showing their lack of support and the, the no campaign, I think it just goes to show that this, this scepticism around the voice and how that will then translate, how is it going to work when you have such an incredible consultation and coming together where you have a, a literal signed document by over 200 elders, 280 or whatever it was, yet you still have such strong opposition. How is that going to translate to getting that mix of voices right to, to the parliament? Like, is this notion of, of the consultation fundamentally flawed? And again, this, these are things that maybe the legislation could, could answer, but voice is singular, not plural, right? It's not Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices, it's voice. So presumably there's got to be some sort of basis for that um, institution to come up with a single position on whatever the topic is or policy issue is. And I think often what happens in, you know, in politics, right, where you get these really sensitive, like say the intervention, right, from the 2000s, where you actually had like quite different views within Indigenous community about the impact of the intervention, and and so you you would have one group saying, "Well, you're not listening to us because you're proceeding ahead with this thing that we tell you is is not good for us and that we don't support." But the problem is that like you would have another group of people saying, "No, we do support this." Yeah, exactly. And so this thing has to sort of navigate that. The the good part of this situation though is that. On such a tricky topic because of the history that Australia has with, well, white Australia has with uh, Indigenous people, that having a few prominent Indigenous leaders voting no or saying that they have an issue with this should give license for a better debate. And I think it does make it a little bit easier for, for hopefully for that to happen if we haven't gone too far and been over-politicised it already, which we probably have. But I, I, I'd be kind of keen to get into some of the some of the arguments around that, right, uh, that, we, that we're seeing, because I think within that, we should all have a bit of space to have this debate before we go to the polls. And, um, you know, I think this is this is the time for us to kind of talk a little bit about that, right? And um, I think a big one that resonates with me is something that, that you know, that, that has come up that you mentioned, which is, has the Labor government gone trigger happy and then use this as a bit of a, you know, political game by hitting us with the referendum before some of the detail work was done or some of the inter the buy-in on the ground? And are we actually having tactical progress at the expense of a proper strategic vision of the Uluru Statement, which involves things like treaties and other things like that? And some of the argument is that now we've put ourselves at gunpoint that 
we kind of have to accept it to get some progress because that's ultimately what most people want, but to at, at what cost? And if it does fail, what what is going to be the what is going to be the fallout from that as a country? You mentioned make tactical progress. I mean, I think actually they potentially took a tactical step backwards in that getting any referendum across the line is hard. And it has to be a no-brainer for Australians to get up and, and vote in favour of it. If you look at any complicated policy proposal and reform and you look at the ones that have succeeded and the ones that have failed, the ones that have succeeded are the ones where, where they've, they've got the answers to any question you could ask. So and just because we were having an exchange earlier about detail, it's not about getting detail out there, but it's about the people who are proposing and, and acting as proponents being across the detail and having really good answers for whatever questions put to them. Everyone will remember the famous um, John Hewson video of how much GST is on a birthday cake. So mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have to put out reams of text sort of outlining all those details and walk the public through it or anything like that. You've got to be able to answer the questions and I don't think they can now. And then they just look like they're in, you know, not across their brief, right? But anyway... I digress. I actually think it's worth talking through the the different perspectives on the the concept of identity, right? The voice is pretty much premised on a notion of identity. It's basically only exists because it's trying to carve a voice for one group in the community who identify as Indigenous and First Nations peoples. I'm interested in your take or your your thoughts on, like, notwithstanding the Uluru Statement, the heart, and that this is what people who identify as Indigenous Australians want, so that's not in doubt. But maybe to take a step away from that and ask the question, is this ultimately going to serve the interests of of Indigenous Australians going forward? The notion of it as being in some ways divisive, right? I think it's at the heart of it. It's it's a great question because I think um, underpinning all of the stuff that we've spoken about is this rubbing point of how do you balance keeping the First Nations people, their values, their culture, the gift that they give to Australia with assimilation that is required for us to all be one people, right? And we've kind of touched on this in various episodes around what kind of combines us as a people and how much assimilation is healthy, right? And that's where I do have concerns. I do do have concerns around a unifying voice and the fact that Indigenous culture is so complex and so fragmented into their own kind of subcultures and, and, you know, regional aspects. And, you know, the more I've been reading and really immersing myself in the psychology and the, you know, the dreaming path and all these kind of values of Indigenous Australia, it becomes like clearer to me that the values are very different as well, right? And I think when you have a different base of values to our kind of Western slash European slash capitalist kind of industry and culture. Um, and the more I learn about it, the more different it is. Yeah, I, I think this is really hard because, you know, we've got to remember that First Nations people, I mean, First Nations people, right? So we are guests in their ancestral land, right? So the conversation is about necessarily... Uh, assimilation in, in you know, it's almost like who needs to assimilate to who, right? Should there be any expectation that they assimilate into into our, you know, that they just do away with their their culture and their way of life and, and their, you know, way of, of living and, and their community and and they they just stop doing that thing and come and yeah. come and be like the re- the rest of us. But Andy, like what does what does it mean to you when they say closing the gap? 
Because to me, when they talk about closing the gap, there's a, an assumption there that it is pulling certain aspects of yeah, yeah. Well, living in the Western world, right? And, yeah. and to do that requires sure, assimilation. Sure, uh, but, but, the, but again- Indigenous middle class, all these things. Yeah, but this is why it's it's tricky. And I, it's not for us to talk to what, if you identify as an Indigenous Australian, it's not for us to talk about what, what, that, what that vision you know, for, for themselves and their community is. But of course, like I guess what, what I'm trying to say is that, sure, there's like a certain practicality to, well, we can't go back to pre- 1788 right that that's just that's not on the table so we need to kind of work out well what's the the middle ground how do we come come together right one way or another but i suppose you know in terms of the identity question there's a lot of presumption in assuming that oh well indigenous australians should just give up on their on their identity and just come and join some greater australian identity right and that's the thing that's that's tricky right particularly given where guests in in their ancestral homes. But look, I guess to your point of like closing the gap, like in a purely material sense and and in any other measure of well-being or welfare sense, will the people of Australia who currently identify as Indigenous Australians, will their children, their children's children, you know, let's say in 100 years' time, be better off as a result of continuing a kind of a notion of we're different? Look, I don't know. but I think this is actually a part of the journey towards not so much just like give up and stop being Aboriginal or Indigenous, give up and just just become Australian and forget your culture and forget you know the, the quite different way of life. Um, this is this is like a, a pathway to somehow maybe get get through the middle where we accept this is the way Australia works now in in twenty twenty three and beyond. But this is a way that we can you know, be part of this going forward. And that's, again, that's why this has been framed as a gift from Indigenous Australia to the rest of Australia to sort of almost concede that, look, we we, we want to be part of Australia going forward in this in this way. And, and these are the terms that we're prepared to do it. Yeah, it's no doubt it's a tricky one. It always is a, is a hard topic to frame. It has a lot of bad faith takes out there, uh, a lot of bad stereotypes around Indigenous people. And I think that's sometimes where the values piece gets uh, mixed up and um, misunderstood by a Western audience. But what's your thoughts on this idea of, because this is another thing, another argument against the voice to parliament. Well, not really the Indigenous voice to parliament, but enshrining it in the constitution. Shouldn't the end goal of closing the gap mean that there is no disadvantage and they're treated just like any other Australian citizen? So shouldn't this be a temporary thing? And if you have it there, will it just reinforce a dependency that there's always a disadvantage for the Indigenous people? It's a genuine question to ask, what's the scope of policies that The Voice will make representations on? So at the moment, it's kind of, it will be up to The Voice to decide which matters it wishes to uh, engage on, right? But well, you I mean, would think Everything that, affects Australians and Indigenous people, and so you can make an argument that is everything, right? But that's the thing, right? You would think that the focus would be on the harder edge of policies that affect, you know, maybe remote Indigenous communities or working through incarceration gaps and things like that, and probably aren't going to be commenting on things like what should happen with the stage three tax cuts. But I suppose the counter-argument to your argument that you know this is like a form of special treatment or whatever and entrenches bad outcomes you know this is the kind of thing that the voice can actually contribute good advice on right because i think in australia we have a history of 
people wanting to do the right thing, not quite understanding it and being very delicate, tiptoeing around issues and not feeling like they have the moral authority to make what call is the right call. And I think actually the voice could potentially break that gap in the sense that you might have a body or that will come to a position that would accept, you know, technical advice from government departments and the like, in, interpret that that into what's good for their community, and then maybe empower a government to make some different decisions than the ones that have been made in the past. I think there's going to be inherent conflict, um, and that that to me at the heart does really worry me about this idea of, like you said, keeping things separate and dividing us into the in, indigenous kind of people and their voice and then the rest of Australia. It's a tricky one, but um, the values thing does does worry me because there's a very, very different way of thinking. So another angle to the voice is this idea that it's this feel-good thing that the rest of Australia who you know isn't Indigenous is doing to feel better about themselves, right? So these kinds of things, whether it's a acknowledgement of country or a, you know, voting yes in the referendum and supporting, you know, the voice, what they're really about, it's actually not about Indigenous people. It's actually about making everyone else feel good and a little bit better about themselves. What's your take on that proposition? I think it's powered by equal amounts of uh, virtue signaling and equal amounts of shame, unresolved kind of internalized shame. So yeah, I mean, there is a very cynical part of me that, that does believe that, that we have not really come to grips with our beginnings as a nation. And that the frank reality is that so many of us haven't even really met or, or have an inner circle with an Indigenous person even in it, yet we are trying to come to grips with all these issues, right? It does feel like a bit of hypocrisy in some ways. But saying that, you know, I mean, we, we do need to move forward right and we do need to address these issues right and and re- reconciliation is a is an interesting part of that right like how much is enough like how much do we have to to face before there is a path forward for all of us and it's, it's a very interesting question i don't know if most people have done that soul searching i know that you know i haven't but there i mean you, you can be very cynical about this and I, th- I think the the welcome to country is a, is a is a great example of that, right? For for a lot of people that are just on autopilot doing that, because it's the it's just it's become etiquette. It's not like the greater meaning behind it. It's just that I know this is the socially acceptable thing to do now, and so therefore it's just I don't even think about it. It's just something that I do, right? Like if there's one thread in my whole being, I think it's that I really hate people who cheaply discharge their obligations, right? So people who think that they're better than other people because they do these superficial things which are actually really meaningless when you think about it. I, I don't want to call a welcome to country meaningless, but if you think you're a saint because you've done an acknowledgement of country in a meeting, or maybe you've even given some story and added a little bit of extra pizzazz to it. But meanwhile, like you've never done anything to support indigenous communities. You've never, you know, you've never yeah. donated money to a cause in your life, or you're not necessarily an indigenous cause, but or you've never volunteered your time, like, sorry, buddy, but you, you can't take credit just because you've done some symbolic gesture that hasn't cost you anything. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that is really skipping to the to the solution without doing the work, right? I don't think that is 
deserve. That was that great example that you know we were, we were listening with a with you know the auction and before the the hammer fell, they did a they did a welcome to country, um, acknowledging whose land it was before they sold the the land, right? Like, and I just think it's just become a little bit absurd. Maybe coming back to the identity thing, the terrible things that happened in the past, like stay with with you and as an indigenous person, and you can't just not have it affect you as part of your identity like you can't choose in some ways your identity it's like how you grew up it's seeing your family members have various experiences knowledge of your history and and then not seeing satisfactory progress in your lifetime that gives you a a a mindset and a framing of like it's not just like turn the switch on and let's all hold hands and all be australian and um, let's forget the past and move on and you get the australian flag bikini in the mail and it's all good (laughs) Just whack it on. Um, these aren't. This is not how it kind of works, right? Identities are things that we all have. In fact, if you're someone who thinks you don't have an identity, that's part of your identity. So we, it's just this thing we have, and we don't really necessarily have that much control over it. But I suppose if um, if this is a way to help men, I guess the gap, I suppose between, let's say, the need for people who currently identify as Indigenous here in Australia to acknowledge and and continue to acknowledge, yes, there were terrible things that that happened in the past and and that that is going to be part of your future sense of self. But at the same time, that helps kind of reconcile in your mind what it is to be a a modern Australian that, well, we've got this recognition, constitutional recognition, we've got the voice. Hopefully that that might help. Yeah, I agree. That's that's well put. And I think that um, my comment about tactical progress but actually trading off where we really want to be, there's a greater risk for the voice for that kind of thing that actually we come together as a nation, we put it in, but then we just, it's just the start, right? And we're expecting the voice to take it from there. No, I don't, I don't think that's how it's going to be. Um, there's still prob- a lot of work to do and treaty or whatever, whatever comes next. And I'm, there is a potential risk that um, you blow the capital on the voice. Also like, you know, I sort of wonder too, like so many, there's so many unknowns, right? When we have this, not just, sorry, not just the legislative sense, which we've labored today, but also in terms of just how powerful or influential will this thing be like in the future? And that depends on so many unknown factors, like how will the Australian people feel about it? Will the Australian people feel like they can't do anything against? Used for political gain, right? Which is often the case with some of these advisory boards. And you know what it is, Andy? It's this, the cynicism on my side comes from working in the corporate world, right? Like think of how many projects and advisory boards crop up in industry and they just are so inefficient, right? They have no accountability. They have no targets. They ultimately become slightly corrupt in, in varying degrees. Like it is a hard one for any anyone who's worked in organizations and experience how these things work there's a reason why these bodies are constantly dissolved and reformed they're trying to get them functioning properly right so that's that's a process that, that will have to be navigated roger you, if you think it's bad in corporate life you need to work in government <laughs> <laughs> i can i mean i can only imagine but but look i, I do want us to take um, a bit of a step back right so we have been true to character roger and andy talking about the concepts here and actually, you know, painting outside the lines. But I want to talk about like right now and where we're at because we can we can sit here and we can um, conceptualize and philosophize about what could have been done or what this represents and effectiveness and strategy of what, what could have happened. But we have a choice right now. What do you think you're going to do? 
I feel like I'm answering one of those vote compass quizzes that the ABC usually puts out before an election. They'll ask you a question like, do you support strong border control, right? And if you answer yes, then they'll pitch you as like a hard right person. If you answer no, then they'll pitch you as like a hard left person. And if you answer unsure, they'll put you in the middle. Do you not not support waterboarding? (laughs) Whereas in reality, I feel like on whatever the measure is, I have this view, but it's for the completely opposite reason than you're going to assess me for, right? So I never feel satisfied when I fill those out. And I feel a little bit like that with your question now. But that's the reality, right? Like that you've only got two choices. We don't get the chance as individual voters to play like 2D or 3D or 4D chess on this, right? And we don't get to decide that there's this better approach that should have been taken or that they should have done it this way. We don't get to decide that, right? Our vote is just a binary yes or no. And even today, it's actually kind of helped me in my own thinking on it. But I think I'm probably more inclined to support it, but apprehensively. And with there being like a fair bit of unknown, like I've got a lot of reasons why I would be cautious about it or I'd be like, oh, I hope they get this right. Um, Because I think there's a lot of ways they can go wrong with it, both in terms of the tactics of getting the vote up Um, but also in terms of the actual outcomes that they produce down the track. So, And like at the end of the day, like I'm one vote and I'm not going to be the difference, right? There's none of our votes like (laughs) are going to be the difference. So in some ways, there's no point overthinking it. And even if it's just to be able to say to yourself that if this gets up, do you want to be on the right side of history? Do you want to remember yourself as the person who voted no to this thing that's going to go ahead? (laughs) Like even if for that reason, it actually makes sense to, to vote yes. But um, Roger, I think um, be remiss of me not to return the favour. Um, how, how will you be voting, and why? For me, there's in terms of a cost benefit, there is still more to be gained, and there's more potential to be gained by voting yes. I think no will have a horrible. I was the word that came to mind was catastrophic, but maybe that's a bit overstated. Effect on race relations, but not only race relations in Australia, but also. Um, I believe what it will do internally to the identity and, and what Australia stands for. And it will just kind of fester the wounds and the unresolved nature of who we are as a people and set us on a path that's very different from reconciliation. I don't see it as we vote no and we come up with something better within a month. <laughs> that's, that's not how I see this playing out. So for me, it's a reluctant yes. And that's because I kind of wish we weren't here. Like I wish that it was more of a sure thing to your point, that they had done the groundwork, they got the details right, and it was just, you know, shepherding this ball into the into the end zone. And I don't think that's where we are. Like, if you get the majority through or, or, or whatever it is, what happens to that, you know, what happens to that 40% that disagree? They didn't just go, oh, yeah, yeah, now I lost now, now I actually believe that that's the right thing to do. They just, they, those views are still within the community, you know, whether it's gay marriage or other things like that. And sometimes I feel that it's not always worth bringing that stuff up. Like, surely there's a smarter way to do this. Um, so for me, it's a reluctant yes, because I still feel like representation is a powerful thing and the potential is there to to really help with policymaking and, and Indigenous affairs and everything like that. And I, I strongly believe in it. Um, but I just am, am concerned about the, the fact that this will divide us as a people. So if we changed for the Coke cans to kombucha cans overnight, you're, not, you're saying it wouldn't have a difference? Uh, I think... Coke Zero is being called uh, Zero Sugar or something. Coke No Sugar. No, sugar. no I think it's becoming Zero Sugar. Isn't it?